This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 182 with guest Christy Coulter. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, Ask Kickers, welcome to another episode of the show. And today we have another recovery episode for you. So the way that this is working is every Tuesday for 10 weeks, this is our second week in the 10 week series. Every Tuesday, I will be putting out a recovery episode. And then Wednesdays, as usual, will be our regular Your Kick-Ass Life run-of-the-mill podcast episode. So two days in a row, Two for the price of one, right? Which the price is actually zero. So that's awesome for everybody. Two podcast episodes a week for 10 weeks. And this one is, oh my gosh. So I first learned about Christy when an essay that she had written went viral. Many of you may have read it. If you haven't, even if you're about to turn this off because you're like, oh, I'm not in recovery. I don't need to listen to this episode. Please go and read Anjoli. It is a piece of writing that is, I will not adequately put into words how great it is. The link is in the show notes. Please go and read that essay. It's amazing. And Christy is awesome. She's just an incredible writer and a woman in recovery who I am just honored to have been able to get on this podcast episode. And I ask her, of course, about a lot of the things that she's written about. She has a whole how to not drink at Thanksgiving, how to not drink, all these different articles that she's written about recovery. And you can find, again, all of those in the show notes. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Christy in just a second. I have one quick announcement for you. I don't often talk about life coaching as a business over here, but I know a lot of my listeners are life coaches or are thinking about becoming a life coach. And if that's you, I invite you to check out my friend Janine Yoder's Mentor Masterclass Holiday Challenge. She's teaching women the process she's discovered that was the most important thing to start and grow a successful coaching business. And she also interviews me on that series. And you can grab the whole series for free, all of the interviews at yourkickasslife.com forward slash holiday challenge. So again, head on over there if you are a coach or are even thinking about becoming a coach. And let me tell you a little bit more about Christy. Christy Coulter is an essayist and fiction writer whose work has appeared online at Quartz, Vox, Marie Claire, and others, and offline in Glamour, Salons, Virgin Fiction Anthology, and the Mississippi Review. Her debut essay collection, Nothing Good Can Come From This, is forthcoming in summer 2018. So without further ado, here is Christy. Well, hello there, Christy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. I know. And we finally, we had some time zone issues and some scheduling <laughs> snafus, and this is our third <laughs> attempt. It was the charm, clearly. I'm so excited to talk to you. I admire you so much as a writer and storyteller and a woman in recovery and in sobriety. And so let's start there. If you could, mm-hmm. you know, take a few minutes to tell us your drinking story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my drinking story started, I guess, when I was probably about 15. I was the kind of kid who was actually really, really straight laced and, you know, was horrified if I saw my friends sneaking a cigarette or something. Just really nervous about alcohol. And I think it's probably. 
don't think I secretly knew that I was going to become an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but I think I, I had this need for control that probably now that I look back said, oh yeah, maybe you, maybe that was a little bit extreme and, and that was going to lead to some trouble. But I started drinking, you know, at parties from the keg, not directly from the keg, you know, from like a solo cup. <laughs> oh, I thought we were going to have something in common. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was 15 or 16 and I liked the way it made me feel a little more relaxed, more comfortable, you know, talking to boys, talking to girls even. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered wine coolers. Oh my <laughs> I really gosh, liked yes, those. My friend from the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my gateway drug. And mm-hmm. Boone's Farm, of course. Oh my and- God, did you used to drink it from the bottle? Of course. Yeah, yeah, that's what we did too. Just straight that's from the That's kind of the only appropriate way to drink it, I think. <laughs> you know, like strawberry hill. Don't bring out the good don't bring out the good glasses for the Boone's farm, but I liked it because it's basically it's kind of like fruit punch with alcohol, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was pink. So yes. I was pink. It was the oh, that's old school rose, I guess. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why when I was drinking, it took me ages to realize that like rose is actually a real wine that can be serious. And you know, because I, I thought, oh no, 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 that's just like pink Zinfandel or something. Yeah. So then in college I drank a lot. I don't know that I drank more than most of the people around me, you know, which I think is happens to, I think in college, a lot of people drink abusively. And then what happens is most of them probably stop at some point. But I went to a small college on the coast of Florida that was very academically strenuous and also very hard partying. So kind of an anything goes bohemian sort of atmosphere. So drank a lot, dabbled in drugs, which never held a lot of appeal for me. In my 20s, I think it was more about kind of controlled drinking, you know, drinking wine with dinner, trying to be really grown up. In my mid-20s, Caroline Knapp's book, Drinking a Love Story, came Mm -hmm. out, and I read it, and I do remember distinctly having, like, this chill down my spine, especially the part where she talks about always watching the level of the bottle and wondering if there was going to be enough. Something just went like ding, ding, ding in my head. And I then said, okay, let's put that away. And I put that away in some other part of my brain for another 12 years. But I knew I was seeing myself. So clearly, even though I was drinking, you know, I think probably like my doctor wasn't concerned. I probably should have been worried. In my 30s, it started to creep upward. You know, my my career was starting to take off. I was in some very stressful, I work in tech, some very stressful corporate roles that I wanted and they were exciting, but there there was a lot of pressure. And I just found that it was becoming like this every night. First, it was two glasses every night. Then it was three. Eventually, and at my worst, it was a bottle every single night, sometimes more, Mm -hmm. hardly ever less. Mostly wine, although I wasn't, you know, I I liked other things, but wine, I basically drink anything but beer. I've had like five beers in my life. I just don't like it. And I drank that way for, gosh, probably 10 or 12 years. And I kept it together on the outside. You know, I think people would have been surprised to know. In fact, people have been surprised to know that there was any kind of problem. Um, But I just felt myself kind of like rotting from the inside out. I felt my ambition started to disappear. My life started to get smaller and smaller. I mostly drank at home because I didn't want to drive drunk. You know, I still had these external strictures that told me, thank God, you know, you can't fuck up your life in a huge way. So I put a lot of sort of rules around myself to make sure I could drink more or less safely, which isn't to say I didn't do plenty of drunk driving because I did. I'm very lucky that I didn't kill someone or get arrested. 
But I just started to feel kind of hopeless, like things were just, the walls were closing in and I could see that my life was going to become nothing but work and drinking. Mm if I kept it up. And I hadn't written at this point, by the way, in probably 10 years. I had um, gotten an MFA in creative writing in my early 20s, had had a lot, some early success, and then just drifted. And I think I drifted for a lot of reasons. You know, like other career interests, I got married, I moved across the country, you know, life happens. But, but looking back, I know that the drinking took my stamina away. It took away the part of me that could just keep plodding away and trying and doing a little each day. Um, it, you know, writing is not about inspiration. It's about just all, all the parts that kind of suck yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. are kind of a slog. And and it took that away from me. And so I tried to moderate. I spent a lot of time trying to moderate. Oh, my God. I should have known right away that moderation was so unfun for me. Isn't it the worst? That- Oh, it's the worst. Ugh. It's just the worst. It's, it's so much work. And I try to be gentle now. I'll hear from people and they say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm hoping to become a moderate drinker. And some people can do that. And so I don't want to be like, look, just give it up. <laughs> I get suspicious with that. Like, honestly, yeah. I feel like I, I don't like to call people liars, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I either mean, you it, didn't have a problem in the first place, which good for you. Like I'm, I'm right. glad that if that's right. the case or you're like through gritted teeth, I can totally moderate. It's working out really well. Yeah. That's what I always <laughs> want to know. I'm like, I, I usually try to say, you may find that it's really, really unfun to moderate. Um, I have known people who have you know, they've had way too much to drink during a tough part of their lives. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then they return to it. And those, yeah, they're not alcoholics. But yeah, when I was moderating, it was all about just the control. And I just felt exhausted. And when I finally said, okay, I can't do this anymore. And, and the day I decided to give up, like nothing special had happened. I just kind of, I just woke up one morning and I had a headache and it was a Saturday morning, a beautiful day. And I just thought, I'm done. Like, it was almost like, a, you know, I'm not, I guess I'm an agnostic, but it was almost like a message from God, if there is a God or from someone or from myself, and I could finally hear it. And I just thought, I can't live like this anymore. And the second I realized I was really done and I didn't have to try to moderate or try and have alcohol in my life anymore, you know, things just got, I mean, I'm not going to lie, they got really fucking hard, but they also in some ways got easier because it just simplified, you know, moderation complexified everything for me and saying almost as though I'd realized I was allergic to shellfish saying, well, I'm obviously allergic to alcohol Mm -hmm. and I can't have it just made things very unpleasant and hard and terrifying, but also really, really simple. And I needed that. Yeah. And I'm with you. I can relate to so much of what you were saying. And it was a lot of my listeners are dichotomous thinkers. And I I encourage them Mm -hmm. to kind of try out the gray area and try not to be so black or white. But in this case, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know for many exactly. of us, like, there's no gray area. Like, it has to, yeah. you either drink and continue down the path that you're going, or you abstain completely. Yeah. And that's, and I'm a dichotomous thinker, too, and I try not to be because it harms me in a lot of ways, you know, that all or nothing thinking. Yep. And possibly that kept me stuck for a while because I was like, well, don't be so, don't be so all or nothing about this. But really, for me, drinking had to be binary. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as soon as I realized that, it made a big difference. Now, I still 
tend to be an overly binary thinker in other areas that I try not to be. But for drinking, yeah. I am one of my favorite women in sobriety, Holly Glenn Whitaker. Oh, yeah. She's been on the series. Yeah. She says it's just something. She says, I don't fuck with alcohol. I just don't fuck with it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, I wouldn't play Russian roulette either because that's just not me. (laughs) I'm Um, I'm even at the point where I won't even drink non-alcoholic beer because is there's a saying I think it's probably an AA like don't tease your disease where yeah. whether you believe it's a disease or not I think it's right. a great saying it's just don't don't dangle the carrot it just is not worth right. it yeah I've, I've been in conversations with women who about like do you drink kombucha or not I mean I don't drink it just because it hides sometimes it makes my mouth feel creepy crawly like this bacterial reaction but it doesn't trigger me, but I know women who are like, I won't get near it because just the, even if I know it's not alcoholic, the taste of it just reminds them too much of a beer, like the fermented taste. That's interesting. Think, it, yeah. it, to me, it just tastes like apple cider vinegar. Like it, it doesn't yeah. have a beer at all. Yeah. And I drink bitters. I mean, I, in tiny amounts and, you know, in soda and that's, you know, pure alcohol more or less, but that's never been an issue for me. And, and I know people who won't get near it, but you know, so it's all just figuring out what works for you and, and just drawing a really hard line with the rest. Like I don't cook with wine because mm-hmm. I don't want to be sitting there with an open bottle of wine in my hand. Exactly. In your house. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of other things to cook. That don't have wine. You can deglaze with lemon juice if you want. Yeah. 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 Oh, so I finally, you know, I stopped, it's been four and a half years. You know, I quit once and I hope that that's, will be the only day one that I ever have. I really do. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. It's, I'm at six years now, I think six. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like, as you get older, you kind of start to stop counting. And yeah. yeah, it's been an interesting ride. Thank you for telling us your story. And I'm going to switch gears a tiny little bit and read an excerpt from, I believe it's, and no one can pronounce this. Is it Anjali or Anjalou? It's Anjali. Anjali. Okay. Yeah. But I just out of curiosity, when did that commercial come out? Was it the early 70s? It must have been, I was about 10, so it must have been around 1980. I think I looked it up. I was a school kid, and I remember being just profoundly impressed with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, oh God, the commercial. So all the links will be up in the show notes, everybody. And Mm -hmm. this is a piece that has just gone around the world and been translated in so many languages and they study it in college courses, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to read an excerpt and I would love to ask you to talk further about it. And it's, it was, there's many of my favorite excerpts in it and a link to the whole piece will be in the show notes for any of you that want to read it. I highly encourage you to. So you say, and I quote, that to be a modern urbane woman means to be a serious drinker. This isn't a new idea. Just ask the Sex and the City girls or the flappers. A woman with a single malt scotch is bold and discerning and might fire you from, I don't have my glasses on, fire you from her life if you fuck with her. A woman with a PBR is a cool girl who will not be shamed for belching. That was me, by the way. A woman <laughs> drinking mommy juice wine, which was me later. A woman uh-huh. drinking mommy juice wine is saying she's more than the unpaid labor she gave birth to. The things women drink are signifiers for free time and self-care and conversation. You know, luxuries we can't afford. How did you not see this before? I asked myself. You were too hammered. I answered back. That summer I see, though. I see that booze is the oil in our motors, the thing that keeps us purring when we could be making other kinds of noise. Why do they need to drink? Well, maybe because even cool chicks are still women. And there's no easy way to be a woman because, as you may have noticed, there's no acceptable way to be a woman. And if there's no acceptable way to be the thing you are, then maybe some women drink a little or a 
a lot. End quote. And this passage made me stop and think because I always thought I drank because, number one, I'm an addict. Number two, <laughs> I loved alcohol and all the Boone's Farm in the world. And number three, yep. to forget about the pain, which I think is the biggest one, is to forget about the pain and struggle in my life in the past and the present. But I feel like in this passage and in the whole piece, really, you're adding another layer. Am I right? I think so. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that women drink for all the reasons anyone drinks, you know, and women who aren't addicts drink because it can be it can be fun. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it tastes good and it's wine is interesting and all that. But I had started to realize and, and I live in like a very specific kind of urban affluent bubble where there's money to be spent on good alcohol and there's, you know, and there's professional rewards that we want to celebrate and et cetera, et cetera. And I started to realize as I was looking around me that especially in the corporate world, that it was really hard to be the right amount of female. Right. (laughs) If you were too aggressive, that put people off. Mm -hmm. But if you were too eager to please, then you weren't aggressive enough. And I started to notice this happening enough with friends of mine and other women I knew. And for me that I started to feel like, how do we, how can you be the right amount of woman to make it in this world? And then I thought, what an insane question that is, because a woman is something you're well, I don't want to say something that you're born because that is sort of trans exclusionary, but you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, it's a thing that mm-hmm. you are. You, most of us don't wake up one day and say, I think I'll be female. You just, you kind of come out that way. And, and I started to realize there were these extra pressures. You know, if you drink and you get raped, someone's going to blame you for it. Right. If you, I mean, they're going to blame you for it either way. Or we blame ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Or we blame ourselves. If you are sexually harassed, you know, but it was at a party and you were drinking, people will think you had something to do with it. At the same time, I thought back to the flappers, you know, the, the flappers started drinking and smoking partly as a show that, you know, hey, we have the freedom to do this. Men work and then they get to go to the, the pub or the bar, or the saloon and and blow off some steam. Why can't we do it too? I think when Sex in the City became such a phenomenon, there was a tone of that also, you know, hey, why can't we act kind of sloppy and, and have our drinks and, and be like men? We also contribute to the economy. We are in this world. We're slogging it out with the rest of you. So I think that it was seen in some ways... It, alcohol was claimed as a feminist talisman or something. I don't know if it sounds like you're a little younger than me, but the Virginia Slims ads of the 70s, the tagline was you've come a long way, baby. Oh, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty iconic. Mm-hmm. And and you'd see on the one hand, like a woman in the 19 at the turn of the century doing something like churning butter and looking unhappy. And then on the right hand side, there'd be like this awesome looking 70s model like Cheryl Teague's smoking those. a cigarette. They were like the long was, skinny cigarettes, right? Yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. And I smoked a lot of them. Um, and it was kind of like, yeah, look at me now I'm smoking and happy and free. And so I think that there was this feminist element to claiming this thing that was pleasurable. And it's complicated for me because I want a big part of my feminism is women should claim their pleasure. Mm -hmm. They should be doing things that feel good and are fun. The problem is sometimes those things kill you. Right, right. (laughs) And, And it's a fine line and every woman has to find it for herself. But for me, this thing that I was telling myself, like, I'm a feminist and I can kind of take shit at work and then 
go drink it off because that's just what cool women do. That was really, really bad for me. Mm-hmm. And it also stopped me from doing anything to make my situation better. So that's sort of where the inspiration came from. Just this looking around and noticing that I felt like a lot of women were drinking away things that were just not okay. And I think men probably do that too. And I had a lot of people write to me and say, why didn't you write about men? And my answer to that is because I was writing about women. Right. I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Well, that's your experience. Yeah. And that's what I'm interested in. I, mean, I think there's plenty of people interested in writing about men. Sure. There's no shortage. There's no shortage of that. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, yeah, we're all humans. But I do think women, and I'm not a mom, but I, I think the whole mommy juice and like mommy's drinking, you know, martinis from a sippy cup or whatever, that whole culture there's something bad going on there and it's not my story to tell, but you know, what are we doing to mothers to make them feel like they have to be so perfect and not supporting them in any way that they're resorting to this? Or is it a way for mothers to hang on to that part of themselves that wants to feel like girlish and free? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it makes me sad. I think it's all of those things. And, and yeah, and, and that's what I was mentioning. You know, that passage did make me stop and think, that yeah, there was another layer. And I think for many of us, it's the layer of exactly what you said and segueing into to motherhood. It, it's mm-hmm. sort of, I don't know if it's so much a coincidence or not, but for me, you know, the very fast story of my drinking story was, is mm-hmm. I started out in my late teens as a codependent and a love addict and mm-hmm. which sort of stayed with me. And then I, you know, brought along just for fun and eating disorder. And then, <laughs> and then like I was about 31 and I realized that I had those problems and actively started recovery for those and have, and it was always kind of a, a normal drinker. Like I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. over here. Like I really could take it or leave it. I did a lot of binge drinking in my twenties, but that's really what all of us were doing. I don't yeah, think it was healthy yeah. by any means, but, and there were times where it was, it was worse than others, depending on hard situations in my life, but mm-hmm. I didn't, it wasn't anything I saw as abnormal until I started healing from those other vices that I had. Uh-huh. It was just like that, the drinking picked up and I also happened to be the mother of two small children. So it Uh really picked up after the birth of my second child, my daughter. That's when my story was like yours. It was a bottle a night. I still remember the first time I drank an entire bottle. I hid the empty bottle in the trunk of my Volvo in the garage because I didn't Uh want my husband. I don't even know if he would have noticed that I drank the whole thing, but I knew. (laughs) Right. But I I do think that there's an element, and I can only speak from my own experience, in that Mm. I was grieving the loss of a few things. First and foremost, the fact that I wasn't that girl anymore that had little responsibilities in my early 20s who could just go out with her girlfriends and and have a lot of fun. And and I was grieving my single self, my child-free self. I was grieving this person who, who I was. And it was like, I felt like that was a death. And and I also felt like it wasn't something that a lot of people talked about. You know, we were just supposed to become mothers. And then that was the biggest fulfillment of our life. And I was feeling really unfulfilled and fucking bored, to be honest with you. Like I didn't want to do crafts. I didn't want to make organic baby food. I didn't want (laughs) to go to the park. Like I just, I wanted to connect with other adults and it doesn't Mm -hmm. say anything about the love for my children. I love my children just like any mother would, but I had these kind of like, I mean, I guess just call them what they are. And it's like, I had these needs and desires <laughs> and yeah. wants as normal humans do. And I just felt like I didn't know how to talk about them with anyone. And I'm the person that is not afraid to talk about anything, but I still didn't know how to talk about it. So I drank 
I drank right. and I wrote a little bit, but I wasn't writing about the things that I really wanted to write about until I got mm-hmm. sober. So it was it was a bit of a mind fuck. And like you said, the pressure, the pressure that I think that, you know, as women, whether you are, you know, have children or not, like we are expected to do things that villages used to help us with. <laughs> exactly. Like, where's the help? I mean, you can hire help if you can afford it now, but and I love to do that. I, I outsource whatever I can, yeah. but, but you still, yeah, just the idea that you're supposed to be so perfect. And then, and now you're also supposed to age perfectly, but you're oh, not wow. supposed to seem like you're trying. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the hard thing is you're supposed to like, people love to give, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, like she gets so much shit and I, yeah, she brings some of it on herself <laughs> for sure. She's a little out of touch, maybe more than a little, but it's like, I think she gets so much shit because she seems to be trying really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to just kind of be cool and perfect. And, you know, it's like the, the actresses who say, oh, I know I just do yoga and that's how I stay a size two. I mean, I've been doing yoga for a decade. That is not how you stay a size two. <laughs> it's really good for you and it can make you really tone, but no, 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 no. And it's just impossible. And, and you know, as I started to get in, I'm 47 now and I started to get into my 40s, I started to become more aware of that. I was like, why now I have all these pressures to like look a certain way, but not be trying too hard and, and to be happy about all of it. You know, it's this idea that what you said about motherhood really struck me because it's a huge life change. I mean, it's way bigger than getting married. Way bigger. (laughs) You know, yeah, it's like everything has changed. If this were, you know, if we were Inuit or something, I don't know, we'd probably have like a hundred years ago or not a hundred, 500, maybe there were village rituals that helped women with this kind of stuff. I don't know, maybe not actually, but it's this massive change and there's no sense of the transition or the shock of it, or the fact that you're still a whole person. Mm -hmm. You've just taken on this enormous new love and also responsibility, but that doesn't mean you don't want to just fuck around sometimes. Right. Hey, Ask Kickers, I'm interrupting this conversation to remind you about something free I have coming up in January. So I know if you're like me and probably the thousands of women listening to this podcast episode, you might have found yourself at one time or another buying a self-help book and either not reading the whole thing or reading it and not really implementing what you learned and read about in the book, right? Well, my new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, is coming out very soon. And I didn't want that to happen to you with this book. So I created a month-long group book study, and I want you to join us. It's totally free. All you have to do is pre-order my book. The link is over at yourkickasslife.com forward slash HTSFLS, or you can simply go to Amazon or your favorite online retailer. Taylor and pre-order the book there. And when you do go back to that page, your kickass life forward slash HTS FLS. And there's a button on there for you to sign up to get your bonuses. This class is one of those bonuses. Again, it will be gone after January. So I am so excited to offer this class book study, whatever you want to call it, party extravaganza with other women, just like you. I know that you're a woman who values self-help and bettering herself and trying to live your own kick-ass life, whatever that might look like. And that's why I created this book study. I will be guided by me. I will be in there regularly answering your questions, making live videos, supporting you, Q 
curating a group so that you can support each other. This isn't about just me throwing you all in a group and having you fend for yourself. This is me guiding you every step of the way. If you missed that link, it's over in the show notes and I will see you over there. It's so interesting. This might be totally off topic, but when you said that, it reminded me of, I went to, I was in my early twenties and my girlfriends mm-hmm. and I went to Vegas for a friend's birthday and we went to mm-hmm. a male strip club. Have you ever experienced a male strip club before? Christine? I never, I never have, but okay. Magic Mike was the first thing that made me kind of want to, cause it looks so fun. That's exactly how they are. Yeah. And we went to this place and I mean, what struck me, of course, there's, it's, and it's different men's, when men are stripping, it's like an entire show. Like they did Green yeah. Lightning, they did Backstreet right. Boys, like they it's it very up. different. <laughs> and so, but what really struck me is the women are losing their fucking minds. And I was right yes. up there in the front row. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, what is it about this that we are so hungry for? And I think that it, it has, it does probably have a lot to do with these gorgeous men under the perfect lighting, but also that we are so hungry and starving to just let it rip and just yeah. be like animalistic, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and have cravings. I mean, that's the thing about Magic Mike that I loved is that I noticed that like the women they were laughing like the yes. women in the audiences were laughing their asses off. And it, and it was this kind of like giddiness that there was something sexual about it, but it was more just like, Oh my God, we're in this room. And these men were kind of ridiculous looking in their banana hammocks. Yeah. They're, like they're, yeah, they're still so overdone, but they're dancing for us and they're having fun. And, and I, and it did make me feel that sense of like, women don't have a lot of chances to just, kind of, they were like, those women were sort of really in their bodies in a way, like they were living in their brains. And I do think that we deny ourselves those things and the culture would like, it's convenient for the culture to have us deny ourselves those things. And so that's why I'm kind of like, we have to take them back, but it, it just shouldn't take alcohol for us to realize that we deserve to feel that way. Yeah. You know? I, I agree with you. And it was interesting to me too. I, I played roller derby several years ago and at That's the time so awesome. I went at the time it was so fun. And at the time when I started, it was the fastest growing women's sport in the world. Not just yeah. in the US, in the world. I don't know if That's it amazing. still is. When I started playing, I think it was twenty twelve. And and it was also around the same time that the Fifty Shades of Grey series was a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that also mm-hmm. made me think, like, what is it about roller derby and Fifty Shades of Grey that women are craving. There's something about this. And it's the same, yeah. I think, as the whole Magic Mike thing, that it, we are craving something taboo and something community and and sex and yeah. all of these things and that... Yeah, and risk and, and that's deemed unacceptable by yeah. society still in this day and age. Blows my the mind. Fifty Shades phenomenon was so interesting to me because I had all these male friends who were like, you know, literary types. And, and one of them was like, well, if that, isn't it just mommy porn? And I was like, well, what is wrong with that? Like, right. so what if it is? And I mean, yeah, it's not a well-written book or books, but, but I was like, what is, you know, what is, and what is wrong with women exploring that side of their sexuality? Mm-hmm. Like it's, there's nothing inherently anti-feminist about that. And so some of the judgment was just so snobby, but I, I think some of it was also, and, you know, rightfully so in, in that it's pretty, the book is kind of unintentionally funny in places, but also just mm-hmm. like this idea that women would 
find that sexy. People were just really freaked out about it. And yeah, the roller derby thing, that's a big thing here in Seattle. I've never been, which is probably some kind of sacrilege. You should go. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm terrified. I, my husband bought me a pair of roller skates for my birthday, a couple birthdays ago. I think at my 44th. And because as a kid, you know, I was like a roller demon at the, at the skate rink. <laughs> yeah. And I took them to the high school track by my house and it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. It was so hard to learn to, you know, and I got myself around the track a few times and my legs hurt for yes, days. And I'm a runner. So it's like, I thought I was fit, but I was, I was not a runner too. Fit. When I went, yeah. I was a triathlete and I went in and was like, oh my God, these girls are, and I was one of the older, I was 37, I think when, uh -huh. when I played and these girls were in their early twenties, many of them, there was one woman who was, who was older than me, but yeah. it's, it doesn't hurt to watch Christy. So just, I would go yeah. to, they're called <laughs> right. bouts. They're not called games. Games. They're called bouts. Try to well, sit as close to the front as you can. Yeah. And Seattle, dang it. I used to know the name of their... The Rat City Rollers. Rat City Rollers. Yes. Yeah. They are like, they've been world champs, I believe. At least. Yeah. At least divisional they champs, I know. awesome too. They're like a lot of them. They're just total badasses. Like, you know, they're all tattooed and they have like these kind of Betty Page or Betty Boop, you know, it haircuts. does have they're like the punk. Steampunk. Yeah. Yeah. That culture. And I was, my derby name was Veronica Vane. And I love it. <laughs> I just want a derby name. That's, I would you do it just one. to get a derby name. Yeah. I have to make one up for you. It was well, fun. Well, I thought my burlesque name is, through a meme, is Beatrice Plum, which, which I love. <laughs> it sounds like a sexy librarian, which is kind of me. So wasn't that the name of Cindy Brady's doll? Oh my God. I don't know. Oh wait, that was Mrs. That's Mrs. Beasley. Mrs. Beasley. She was a scary doll. <laughs> no wonder Cindy was so fucked up. Her doll was terrifying. Mrs. Beasley. That was her Mrs. name. Beasley. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know why I mixed that up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Switching gears here. I, I have yes. a question about, uh, you have this whole series on your uh, links to it on your site, the whole how to not drink series. Oh yeah. So I think my listeners would love to know what are your best tools for not drinking? I think especially for someone who maybe is in the first, you know, six months or so of drinking, yeah. who might be hearing that voice of like, well, it's Thanksgiving, you know, maybe I can have like one or two glasses of wine just this one time. What are your right. best tools about that? Right. So I think when you are really newly sober like that, the first thing to do, and I think this is an, I'm not an AA, but I think this is an AA thing is they say, think through the drink. So when you find yourself thinking, oh yeah, I can just have one glass of wine or two glasses of wine, just please stop <laughs> and mm -hmm. think about whether that has ever worked out the way that you want it to, um, <laughs> ever. Mm -hmm. And think about what's likely to happen instead, which is probably that, you know, you're going to end up fighting with your mom at the table or, you know, you're, or else you're just going to end up feeling crappy and sleepy and just really play it through and decide if it's worth it. I don't think it is. You have to decide for yourself. But think about what would normally happen. And don't assume that this is some extraordinary occasion where you're going to be able to keep it together. Right. Because if you are have gotten sober, that means you probably at least think you're an addict and you're probably right. The other thing that really helped me early on was just giving myself permission to bail whenever I wanted. I was working in publishing at the time. There was publishing's pretty boozy. There were a lot of events I had to go to and I would just have a plan. I was like, you are going to go in, you're going to work the room. You're going to do, I'd have a goal of like five people I wanted to talk to. And then I was like, and then you can leave. And when you leave, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I probably, I did not eat very well. My first months of sobriety, I think I actually gained weight because I was like, you can go have ice cream. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that is fine. You can't live like that forever, but like one thing at a time. And so I think just recognizing as like we, like we were saying with motherhood, you're in a massive transition and you have to be really, really gentle with yourself and you have to come first. If it comes to the point where you think that, I mean, this is easy for me to say, but like your family Thanksgiving is going to be too much for you. You don't have to go. Uh-huh. I mean, that may cause drama. That's why I'm saying it's easy for me to say, but your sobriety has to be the first thing. I also think having someone there who's sort of like, if you're comfortable telling someone, someone who can sort of be your support, I think that's really helpful. Just someone that you can kind of make crazy eyes at if things are getting a little strange. And having something, if you're in an environment where people are going to be wanting you to drink, having something that just looks like alcohol, you know, club soda with lime, I guess looks like vodka tonic. It doesn't, I always hated having to do that because I felt like I was passing, but it, it does help. It'll get people off your back. It does help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, I always, I know this isn't for everyone, but sometimes (laughs) I, I purposely make people uncomfortable. Like if they, if I meet someone who's kind of cajoling me and being like, Oh, are you sure you can't have one? And I'll say something and I have to be in the middle and be like, we really don't want me to get drunk because I might end up making a pass at your husband. And then that's just going to be bad for everybody. So (laughs) exactly. Oh yeah. And they're like, I'm at the point. Okay. Yeah. Like, all right. If someone like people always want to know why, which I find so funny. It's like, Oh no. Oh no. Thanks. I'm fine. Oh, do you not drink? Nope. Why? (laughs) Like, why would you, what if I said, I don't eat shellfish? Like, would you ask me why? Um, but they want to know why. And sometimes I'll just be like, well, because of alcoholism. Yeah. Um, I say and that to people. yeah, I only say it when I, you can get the vibe when it's like really, when someone's just going to give you a hard time and this virtually never happens to me anymore. And it didn't happen all that much to begin with. I think I was fortunate. I was 42 or 43 when I got sober and, you know, most of my friends, even though people drank a lot, it wasn't like we we're all doing keg stands or something. You know, people were like, OK, you know, you know what I would do if I were my age now? I would just tell people I was pregnant. I think that would be pretty funny. And just watch their faces. <laughs> You're like, what? Janet well, Jackson did it. Why yeah, not? <laughs> yeah. Like, actually, <laughs> surprise. But then, you know, I'd have to, oh, it would just be, turn into a tragic story when I didn't actually produce a baby. <laughs> so <laughs> More lies. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell people just, just do what you have to do. And, and also the thing that was really hard for me to understand is people aren't watching you as much as you think they are. Like you're going to feel acutely self-conscious, but most people really don't care. And a lot of people, this will come as a shock to you. Don't drink that much. So (laughs) just incredibly shocking to me. I'd go to these events and, and there'd be plenty of people who were really lit. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I'd be chatting with someone who would have like maybe a glass and a half of wine all night and they would leave wine in their glass. And I hadn't realized these people existed in such great numbers. So it's still weird to me. I know. We went camping with some friends of ours and, you know, we all brought our kids. And to me, camping equals drinking. Like you just, mm-hmm. it's like being on a boat. Like why, why would yeah. you go would you camping or on a boat, like without beer or some yeah. kind of alcohol? So we went camping with this other family and I know that they drink, but they aren't drinkers. Yeah. And because I've seen their pictures on Facebook and stuff, they go out on date night and they'll be like cheers and yada, you know, whatever. Yeah. 
And so I assumed that they were going to bring booze with them when we all went camping. And mm-hmm. I mentioned something to her as we were kind of planning out our camping menu and stuff. And I, cause she knows that I'm sober and I'm like, and I, yeah. and I said, I totally don't care if you want to bring beer or whatever. It's not a big deal. Cause some people, mm-hmm. they are like, do I ask yeah. Andrea? Can I have it in front of her? And she yeah, looked at me kind of yeah. like, like it was, she looked sort of like, oh, I hadn't even thought about bringing alcohol with me. And she's like, oh, it's, I probably wouldn't bring that. It's, it's just added weight or, or something like that. And I was right. like, what? Like, <laughs> exactly. Like, and I love it that you're the sober person. You're thinking about her beer. I'm and thinking she's, about booze. She's not. And it is really heavy, but I can guarantee you, like, I don't camp, but yeah, drinking me would have made damn well sure that we found a way to, to handle that added weight. Like maybe we would just bring one less. I don't know, whatever you bring on camping trips. You just bring like boxes of wine. Like that's when you bring out the Franzia. <laughs> right, right. Because it's efficient and, and it has a handle. Like back yeah. in your stuff. Things like vacationing were tricky for me because everywhere we went, you know, whether it was to like a spa or to Italy or, you know, where it could be to like, we could go to like Cleveland, Ohio, and we'd be finding the best cocktails and cocktails you know, and the best food, which kind of goes along with drinking. And so my first sober vacation was, I was really nervous about that. And we went to this beautiful resort in Sedona called Enchantment. And, and it was amazing. All my fears vanished. The waiters quickly realized that, you know, my husband got sober about six months after I did so that neither one of us drank and nobody was trying to push it. And we were in this beautiful location and, and it's all the awkwardness that I was so terrified of probably took a day to vanish. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other thing I would tell people is realize that things are going to change. And sometimes they change faster than you think. Now, I was really lucky that, you know, I know women and men who have spouses who aren't supportive of their sobriety or who are kind of really even worse, passive aggressive about it. I was so extraordinarily lucky, but it's the world at large is going to be more accommodating than you think. And also you're going to realize there's a lot of people who don't drink at all just because they don't drink. Right. It's That's really like my weird. Husband. My husband's not an alcoholic, but he doesn't drink just because he doesn't. Yeah. Drink. It's super weird. It's I, super I don't weird understand these people at all, but I heard, you know, when I, at my company, you know, we have a lot of, it's a tech company. We have a lot of employees like from India and a lot of them, some of them drink, but a lot of them grew up not drinking and just don't drink. Or maybe they've had like four beers in their whole life or something. And, and at company events, like I became friends with a lot of them because I was looking for someone to talk mm-hmm. to who wasn't drunk. And you go around the margins of the room and you start to realize, yeah, there's all these people who just, it's just not part of their reality. Or, you know, I have some Asian friends who's, there's a syndrome that some Asian people get where they flush, like, Mm -hmm. uncomfortably, but they have any alcohol at all, so they just don't drink. And it's, it's kind of, the world is, is bigger and more varied than I realized. I mean, in, in many ways than I realized when I was drinking, but especially in the universe of drinkers, which I still, the addict in me still finds amazing. I'm like, why isn't everybody just lit all the time? And the addict in me finds it interesting too. I still notice it. Like I still have a hard time when we go to a restaurant and it's busy and they seat us mm-hmm. in the bar. Yeah. I ask them to seat us somewhere else because yeah. I just don't, I just don't feel like having it in my face. 
You know, right. just if I have a choice, no, thank you. I'd rather enjoy yeah. my meal without my ex lover walking by 17,000 times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking kind of good. And no. those bottles so, of alcohol, yeah. I was, I was somewhere with my husband a while back and we were in some beautiful restaurant that we were, I could look at this beautiful bar and I was like, you know, those bottles of alcohol are pretty. They were lit exquisitely. It was a really well-designed restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's colors and glass. And, and I was able to sort of look at it as like, it looks like art. Like it looks yeah. beautiful beautiful. And, but I didn't particularly want to keep looking at that art. Right. I noticed that I'm irritated with my favorite grocery store that I drive probably an extra five minutes out of my way to go to this grocery store. They totally redid the liquor department in the grocery mm-hmm. store. And of course it has beautiful hardwood floors. The lighting is very modern and rustic yeah. and beautiful. They even have, I don't know if it's that way in Seattle, but craft beer is like really big deal in Greensboro. Oh my God. It's the only, it's practically in the water fountains here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the way it is out here too. I think it yeah. is in a lot of big cities across the yeah. US. And so, and they have that, they have it like they have beer on tap. There's even an advertisement out in the front, you know, that pints it's like, it's half price pints on Tuesday. So you can like drink while you grocery shop. And I'm just like, yeah, because it it's like over by the frozen vegetables. And so I like yeah. give them the side eye all the time. I'm like, eh. Right, right. Sad. <laughs> I, I take it personally. In, <laughs> yeah. I have a Facebook friend in Eugene who one of their supermarkets just opened a bar in the supermarket. Like it's just there. And it has like bar stools and everything. Yeah. So you could go sit there in your, and I'm like, why in the world? Like I've been to Eugene, it has adorable bars and restaurants. Like why would you go to the supermarket to have your drinks? But, but yeah, it's kind of everywhere. There's a pharmacy here. And I actually mentioned this in my essay. There's a pharmacy that installed taps and you can get like growlers full of beer mm-hmm. and it's on the campus of my company. And so like any Friday, there's like a line of 20 tech dudes lined up to fill those things. And people didn't believe me. I had all these, these people coming to me saying, I know you're lying. That would never happen. Mm. Mostly men because they hadn't seen it for themselves. So they thought that it couldn't exist. I was like, do you understand object permanence? Like, this is weird. <laughs> and I sent one guy, finally, I just got so fed up. I sent him a link to an, a news article about it. Like, and, and then he was like, well, okay, you should have cited that in your essay. And I was like, fuck you. No, I should have cited it. It's a personal essay. I'm telling you, I saw like what career gain is in it for me to just make that up. Oh my and, God. Um, <laughs> make up the story. Yeah, this fandom make, pharmacy. Yeah. Yeah. That someone could probably easily figure out that that wasn't true. But people, I think they have a hard time, especially maybe in other parts of the country or just uh, cultures where it's not as common believing that, you know, a pharmacy, which is like a place where you get medicine to right. make your body work better. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is selling beer. And I mean, these pharmacies sell candy and all that stuff too, but, but it's just, that's how far it's permeating into the life. And I just think it's weird, even for people who aren't alcoholics. Like, I just don't know, like, do you really need to be able to buy beer and wine everywhere you go? And do they have to sex it up so much? One of our supermarkets here also has a really good wine section. It has the hardwood floors and the low lighting. And it's kind of, it's not the the liquor store of like my childhood, which was kind of grungy and, mm-hmm. you know, ugh, it's sexy. It's right. female friendly. It's female friendly. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I know we don't have enough time to go into that whole thing where I just yeah. feel like that companies are making a profit off of the off of women abusing alcohol. I do believe yeah. that that is a problem. And I think that I've been feeling more and more of a pull to, cause that's one of my questions is like, how do we change this? And I think that change comes with 
a lot of things. And, and the first thing is, is people talking about it and people writing about it. Yeah. And, awareness. And what, just total just, awareness. Even women I know who drink and who are normal drinkers. I mean, I don't know these women. They say they're normal drinkers, but they say they're thinking about it differently now. Like they're just aware of why they're drinking. They're aware of the marketing. And that was kind of my only aim. It wasn't to change anyone's drinking habits necessarily. It was just to say, like, think about what they're telling you and and think about why it's so handy for our culture to have you drinking, over drinking, you know. And I do think it's awareness. And I'm actually writing I know we're almost out of time, but I'm writing more about this. So there's an essay I should have coming out in the spring that's more about like the marketing of alcohol to women. So there's something to look forward to. Now I have to finish it. Now I talked about it. I have to finish it. (laughs) Yes. Now you have to. (laughs) Because we're all going to be waiting. But everyone, please go over to the show notes and check out the links in there to Christy's writing. And it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And I think that this is such a bigger conversation that, you know, we could keep talking about for, for hours and hours and hours. And Thank you again so much. And don't you have a book coming out? I do. My first book will be out next August. It's called Nothing Good Can Come From This. And it's a book of essays about drinking and not drinking. So it's it's kind of a memoir and essays about my drinking life and especially about my sober life. And I think it's insightful and funny. It's <laughs> a great title, um, too. I love the title. But my editor came up with the title. And, and at first I was like, I don't know. But people have responded really well to it. And it, she said it's the kind of thing I would say. She's known me for 10 years. So I was like, OK, you're probably right. Uh-huh. So yeah, it'll be out next August and you should all definitely, definitely read it. That's exciting. Yes. yes. But when it, when it comes out, I'll have to have you on again. I'd I love that. I, I don't think I'll have the recovery series during that month, but for sure on just like, you know, the regular broadcast of the podcast, which is the same people. Right. <laughs> right, right. Thank I would, you so I would, much, I would love Christy. To do that. Yeah. That, I would love thank to have you. you on for that. And thank you as always, everyone for being here and for listening to this series and any other episode of the podcast. I'm so honored that you are here spending time with us. And until next time. I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know, it would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.